Let's turn to Romans chapter 3 as we continue that liberational mood. Romans chapter 3, my prayer is always that the knowledge of the Son of God would be made known to you clearly and cohesively, and that's my prayer this morning in my moments of contemplation before the Lord, which I try to take every Sunday. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, we're going to pick up on some things. I normally wouldn't do this, but this is what the Holy Spirit's been directing, is going verse by verse through Romans on Sunday mornings of all times. And usually I didn't do that kind of thing because I didn't expect alertness to be at its high peak on Sunday mornings, but you've proven me wrong. So we're going to continue. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to show the salvific and ethical impotence of the law. The law is impotent to save. It's impotent for ethics. And the only thing that's efficacious for saving is Jesus Christ himself. And the only one who's efficacious for ethics is the Holy Spirit, God in us both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. So Romans chapter 3, verse 9, this is going to wind up pretty much the meat of the argument that Paul has with a teacher who contradicts his message. This teacher is a Jewish Christian. It's important to recognize this teacher has accepted and known Jesus to be the Messiah. But the message of this teacher is a law message, a salvation by gnomism, by making pagans basically into Israel after the flesh through circumcision followed by a comprehensive following of Torah, the law of Moses. And he recognizes that Jesus Christ came and was Messiah, and that he came to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, that he died and rose from the dead. But that about ends the story. John, in First John, kind of addresses that when he says, Christ became the propitiation for our sins, speaking of fellow Jewish believers, but not ours only but for the sins of the whole world. And Paul tackles at the end of Romans, yes, I agree that Jesus Christ came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, but also to show mercy to the Gentiles, the pagans. And this is what the argument is about. This is what I've called a dialectic of contradictories. Romans 1 to 3 has to be interpreted, especially 118 to 320, where we're going to conclude today. It is a dialectic, an argument, you could call it a rhetorical argument between Paul and this anonymous teacher whom he anticipated the arrival of in Rome. The same kind of gospel was preached in Galatia and caused the defection of three churches all at once who followed after a series of teachers, cohorts of this teacher. And Paul is about ready to shut him down completely now in this part of Romans. Romans one eighteen to 3.20 is this dialectic of contradictories. Two gospels, there's no reconciling the two. There is no reconciling a gospel so-called, and he even called it good news. I call it fake good news just to get, keep up to date with our sayings we have today, the fake good news of the teacher. And though he called it the gospel, euangelion, Paul begs to differ, and there's no reconciliation between people being saved by the law and people being saved on the basis of the faithfulness of that Messiah. And that's the big picture. But Romans 3.9, Paul says this then, Paul asks this question of this teacher with whom he is in a sort of an argument. It's a pretty strong one. What then, Paul says, are we, meaning Jews, Paul also was a Jewish Christian, are we any better, meaning than the pagans? The teacher says he's forced to through clenched teeth. No, not in every respect. Paul then says, we have both, speaking of this teacher. Now he takes this teacher and makes him walk this path with him at the end. 
He actually makes this teacher walk this path with him because both the teacher and Paul have proclaimed messages with this content in it from the Psalms and from the prophets, which is going to be a cascade of verses that are going to close down the argument. By the end of 320, Paul has pretty much taken the fortress, demolished the fortress of this false gospel. He has a few more things to take captive to Christ in his strategy, and they'll come up later in Romans. But then notice what he says. You and I both, is, is what he's talking about, we have both publicly charged everyone, both Jews and Greeks, also known as pagans or goyim or heathen by the Jews, to be under the power of sin. Now, I've asked our midweek service students to capitalize the word sin because it's a power. It's a kind of a personal power over the human race and really over the creation as it is now in this present evil age. Also capitalize death. Death is personified in the scripture, throughout the scripture. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. the apostle Paul said the last enemy that shall be brought under subjection is death, hothanatos. So capitalize death, and we'll see that this is a drama involving several characters. There's the law, which basically means Torah, which this teacher claims is the means of salvation, compliance with Torah, most notably beginning with the circumcision of males, a huge question also in Galatians where Paul hits this whole matter head on. So sin, death, and the law all should be in, begin with a capital letter because we're talking about players or actors in a drama. So Paul says, we have both publicly charged, that is in our preaching, both Jews and pagans to be under the power of sin. This is where the gospel lies. The gospel is God's redemptive invasion into this present evil age to unconditionally rescue humanity who are under the power of sin with no power to extract themselves from that suprahuman power and to save and rescue the human race from death and also to save all of creation from its enslavement to corruption as Romans 8, 19 to 23 says. The gospel is nothing short of preaching Christ and the Christ event as the means of this redemption. It's a full-on divine invasion that began with Christ's incarnation, carried through his obedient life in which he was obedient for us. That obedience led to his death on the cross. He was obedient to the death of the cross, to the extent of death of the cross. To whom was he obedient? To what was he obedient? He was obedient to the Father's intention of love. For God loved the world so much that he gave his Son. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was obedient to that great intention of the Father, which is an intention born of the unshakable, endless benevolence of God who is love. In 1 John 4, 8, 4, 9, God is love and he sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins that we may live through him. Who is our sins? Everybody's sins in 1 John 2, 2. So that who may live? So that all may live for in Christ all will be made alive. Now I'm asking some of you to consider that in a very strong way. What's going to happen during the course of this message is the same thing that's going to be happy that happened in Elijah's day and in Joshua's day. A line will be drawn in the sand and you'll be asked to choose. Choose whom you will serve. Are you going to serve a gospel that has something to do with anthropocentric effort? Or are you going to serve the God of the Christ who won that salvation? There's going to have to be some decisions made. I can't make it for you. Only you can make it. But as Elijah made the decision, as he put the decision before people, and as Joshua put his decision before the people, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve 
the Lord, the Christocentric gospel. So here's where Paul starts in the final flurry of punches that puts the teacher pretty much down. There's nothing left to do after this but count to 10. And verse 10, as the scripture puts it, there is no one righteous, not even one. We saw that last week. And there is not one who understands. No one seeks for God. There goes the preacher's or the teacher's concept in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that people have the capacity in their thinking to recognize God and what God expects of people ethically by contemplating the universe. No, there's not one who understands. So much for the teacher who said those who seek after glory and honor and immortality will receive eternal life. Eternal life as a reward of those who seek God. So much for that right here. There is no one who seeks God. It's not even in man to seek God. It's not in man to understand God. It's not in man to extract himself from this too big to fail power, sin. It's too big to fail as a power over man until God comes in. And as Jesus said, the strong man's house where he keeps his goods is only overcome by a stronger man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. As the scripture puts it, there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there is no one who understands, not one who seeks for God. And this teacher, you know, he said, teacher, you've taught this too. And it sort of contradicts your gospel. Verse 12, all of them have turned aside at the same time. We looked at that last week pretty intensively. All turned aside at the same time, and we demonstrated that that was when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, all the human race was considered to have sinned, so that in Adam, all are under sin, and through Adam, sin passed into the whole of humanity, and with it, death, sin and death, became the two suprahuman powers over the human race and over creation itself. And so when the scripture is, the scripture is very clear that death could not hold him. And though he died, he broke the bonds of death in his resurrection from the dead. That's already happened. Death has already been dealt its death blow, but death has yet to give up all its victims. All that death has claimed as victims will be reclaimed by God in life because the victim is Jesus Christ, the ultimate victim who was resurrected from the dead. As the victim who died and who was reclaimed from death, Jesus Christ represents all human beings and he represents all of creation. For as in Adam, all die. God doesn't save us in Adam per se. He saves us from the Adamic ontology. So we'll see how this unfolds throughout the the epistle of Paul. I want to keep moving here, though. All of them have turned aside at the same time. They didn't turn aside one by one when they looked up into the sky and failed to recognize God as the the preacher taught, as the teacher taught in Romans 1.18 to 32 in his turn or burn sermon, which is the essence of which is repeated day after day after day and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in pulpits, on TV, with TV so-called evangelists, with a fake good news, repeated over and over again is this turn or burn mentality. And even when we talk about repentance, we have to look at verses like Acts eleven eighteen. The Jewish leaders of the church in Jerusalem were rejoicing because, guess what? According to Peter, God had granted repentance to the pagans granted it, given it. So all have turned aside at the same time. How? In Adam. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all are under the power of sin. In Christ, that power is broken. Therefore, the great declaration is that it was for freedom that Christ liberated us. So stop being entangled with any yoke of slavery, including Torah. Torah enslaves, and we'll show you why. The Torah is good, it's spiritual, it's righteous, but it can't promote or produce righteousness. It's impotent through the flesh, through its address of the Adamic ontology. 
it breaks down. So as we're going to see in Romans 8, 2, where the great climactic phase of God's gospel about his son reaches a peak, what the law could not do, God did by sending his son. Divine mission one, he sends his son. Divine mission two, the son continues. The mission of the son continues in the spirit. The spirit is sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's when God is pleased to reveal his son to us. So Paul says, you and I have both said this. He's making this teacher walk this path with him because it's in the scripture. All of them have turned aside at the same time. They have become depraved. That became a, an official doctrine under Calvinism, man's total depravity. In fact, it's the T in the TULIP acronym. The T is total depravity. I would prefer to call it radical incapacity on the part of man to extract himself from the power of sin over his life. Oh, you can candy coat your humanity and your human experience, and you can walk it through sacraments and rituals and so-called Christian morality, and you can even slap a bumper sticker on it of a fish, but you're not out of the Adamic ontology until the Holy Spirit, where there is liberty, liberates you. He goes on to say, there is no one. This means not a single one. No one who acts kindly. Not a single one. Their throat the Greek is ho larynx, their larynx, which is kind of like the voice box. Their throat is an open tomb. There, the pronoun, the possessive pronoun is plural. Throat is singular, which means the whole mass of humanity under the Adamic ontology outside of Christ has this problem, the same throat. People who even say bad things about people who slander at some time slander. People who don't use their tongue to blaspheme, at some time, blaspheme. The whole human race is in a desperate situation from which it cannot extract itself. The throat, their throat, is an open tomb. Their tongues, plural, deceive. The poison of vipers is under their lips. They're already always ready to spew their ressentiment, their bitterness, it's, it's a terrible thing. Sometimes you see this happen with comedians. They may be very funny in the beginning. Then they get something in their craw that's ideological or political. They start to have great antipathy toward the leadership of a nation or a certain group of people, and they turn bitter. They're, no fu- they're, they're not funny anymore. Now it's bitter. It's bitterness. We are by nature children of wrath, and so Paul says put away wrath because we are by nature tuned to antipathy. Anger, resentment, maligning, not speaking to each other eye to eye so that we can have a rational discussion, but wrath, irrational hatred, resentment, put aside all anger, wrath, and malice because in putting off that wrath, we're putting off the nature of that wrath. We're putting off the Adamic ontology and that's Ephesians And you know by when I say Ephesians, I'm not going to stop saying Ephesians, but you know that means the letter of Paul to the Laodiceans according to Colossians 4.16. So, verse 13, their throat. Remember, this goes back to Psalm 14.2 where the Bible says, God, the creator, looked down upon the children of men. That's the whole mass of humanity. And he saw this. The whole mass of humanity in all its generations at once. It's when, when God saw this, you know what was in his mind when he saw this? He surveyed the whole human race and came up with this negative appraisal. But you know what was in his mind? I have to unconditionally save these people. I have to save them by my pure, unadulterated, sheer grace and power. I'll do it by a divine invasion involving two divine missions. I will send my son. Then I will send the spirit of the son into their hearts. And eventually all will be made alive. Eventually every eye will see him. Eventually every knee will genuflect before him. Eventually every tongue will acknowledge 
that this Jesus is Yahweh himself in the flesh and that all people are under the God of Israel as the Israel of God. That's coming. Notice it. Paul gives this katina or cascade of scriptures, giving lower blade data to the theological concept. It's really homardiology. I'm going to do some theology with you pretty soon, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday nights. How about Thursday nights? Which has been called by various people who come on Thursday night, thoracic Thursday, renegade Thursday, and thoughtful Thursday, and not thirsty Thursday. That's my mom's condo. Now, maybe Thursday we'll do theology class in Paul. But in this verse, Paul continues a cascade of scriptures from the Psalms and also from Trito Isaiah, or the third Isaiah 59, 7, and 8, as lower blade data that confirms the theological concept of universal human depravity in Adam. Universal human depravity. Man is not as evil as he can be, but man is so depraved that he cannot extract himself from sin, even if he reconstitutes the Adamic ontology to look good, smell good, and be baptized. He can't do it. Radical incapacity. I'm not preaching a gospel of how to have a happy life or how not to suffer. I'm not teaching a gospel about how to be driven by a single purpose. I'm preaching Christ here. We preach Christ. We preach Christ. The gospel is all about Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the truth of the gospel. He is the life that justifies all of humanity because in Christ, all will be made alive. In him who is alive from the dead, all will be made alive. In him in whom truth is embodied, all will know the truth and come to the saving knowledge of God and the truth, as 1 Timothy 2.4 says. And all will come to know the way, that the way is a person. It isn't the way to a wiser life, the way to a happier life. That's the teacher's stuff. You can leave that to the teachers. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that Paul preached. It is the gospel that I preach unequivocally, without any kind of apology and without having to kowtow some, to some church affiliation or magisterium or church leaders. I can identify with Paul in Galatians in that regard. So Romans 3.13a is a quotation of Psalm 5.9. Their throat, their larynx is singular, but the possessive pronoun auton is plural. Romans 3.13b is a quote of Psalm 140 in verse 3, if you want the LBD, lower blade data. Emphasize, once again, is the common and universal state of all the sons of men, which in the Hebrew is very interesting. All the sons of men in the Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and also Psalm 53, 1 to 3, is beni adam, beni adam. And that is the sons of Adam, the sons of Adam. That means all in Adam. Paul is talking about everyone in Adam. Again, the Hebrew is very revelatory here. Emphasize once again the common, universal state of all the sons of men. Beni Adam. Beni Ha Elohim, the sons of God. Beni Ha Adam, the sons of Adam. The sons of Adam is everybody. It is everybody who is now unrighteous. And as 1 Peter 3.18 says, he, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, which is all humankind. It puts us all into one boat. And this, incidentally, theology ends any kind of racism. This is all one. We're all in the same boat. Total depravity. Radical human incapacity in need of unconditional grace. For salvation and indeed of um, in need of omnipotent power. And the only way that happens is by God sending his son and then sending his spirit. So Yahweh served all at once the Bini Ha Adam in all their generations. Accentuated here then is the radical 
ethical incapacity of humanity and its complete inability to extract itself from enslavement to the powers that are too big for them, too strong for them, namely sin and death. So Romans 3.14, all of humanity in Adamic ontology is being characterized here. After we are in Christ and participate in his faithfulness, we are really in the war because the flesh, which is our Adamic ontology, still wars against the desires of the Holy Spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. If you don't go one way or another, it's a Mexican standoff, as they say. Six people with six guns aimed at six people with six guns aimed at six people with six guns. Nobody's shooting. Nothing's happening. You don't do anything. You're just stuck in suspended animation, which is where a lot of people are in religion today. So notice how it goes on to say, in verse 14, their mouth, there it is again, singular, to stoma, is full of cursing and bitterness. You know where Paul's headed with this, their mouth? He's headed for Romans 3:19 to 20, so that every mouth will be shut, including the teachers, especially the teachers. Who are you, O oh man, who condemns another, who teaches another, who preaches another, who preaches at another? Who are you? You do the same things. You're in the same boat. And Adam, all die. Reconstitute Adam like they reconstitute sugar into all kinds of different dainty things. But it still has the same horrific results, Adamic ontology. It's not a total analogy. There is, an, and of course, it's important in my life to enjoy sugar in moderation. It wasn't in moderation for a while. And so I was dying by inches. Now for the past three weeks, it's been in moderation. And got a little more energy, a little bit more. So here we have it. Romans 3.14, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Man, if you want to see that, all you got to do is look at the, the news, whether it's fake or not. Bitterness Hatred, antipathy, hostility, anger, wrath, malice. Unbelievably unbridled in our time. And it says it here. The mouth is singular while the relative pronoun hon is plural, indicating the universal mass of humanity in what we call Adamic ontology, otherwise known as the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, the flesh. Next, in Romans 3:15 to 17, added to the testimony of the Psalms is now a witness from the prophets, namely Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. Romans 3:15 through 17 is a citation or a quotation with a little accommodation of Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Their feet are swift to run to shed blood. Destruction and distress are in their ways, and notice this, and the way of peace they have not known, or even better in the perfect, they do not know the way of peace. The way of peace is the gospel. They don't know the gospel. They can't recognize their condition and how desperate it is until they're in Christ and look back and say, wow, what I was saved from. You talk to most people and say, you need to be saved. They'll say, from what? They don't know the way of peace. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the one who is the way, and they don't know who is the peace. Jesus is our peace, Laodiceans 2.14, and Jesus is the way, John 14.6. Jesus is the truth, which is the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation in Ephesians 113. They have not know, they do not know the way of peace. Ways here is both plural and then singular. Ways is plural. Because when God surveys the human race, he sees all kinds of ways that people take. And as a matter of fact, as many people as there are, there are that many ways. 
Almost everybody is singing, I did it my way, or even better, I'm doing it my way. Why are you doing it your way? Because I have a way that seems right to me. Well, then in Proverbs 14, 12, have you read that lately? There is a way that seems right to a person, but the end of that way is a dead end called death. Like the letter, like the law, like the Torah, like the gospel of this teacher, you are justified by adherence to and obedience to the Torah, and God will help you a little bit with that. But the scripture says the letter kills. Following Torah for justification or righteousness kills you. You're already under sin and death, but when the Torah came, the sin increased, according to Romans 5.13. Sin increased when the Torah came into the human race. Before the Torah came, before Moses, from Adam to Moses, sin reigned in the human race, and therefore death reigned as king because sin reigned. But then the law came in, and you'd think it would have rescued people from sin if the Torah is, if the teacher of the Torah is right. But it says in Romans 5.13, by the The Torah, sin increased. But then thankfully, as we go on in Romans 5 in the Unchained Gospel, as sin increased, the grace of God hyper-increased. And then comes the thing, well, that's a license to sin. And then Paul addresses that really kind of, I have to say, without antipathy, kind of a stupid thing to say about the gospel, that it's a license to sin. Paul takes the time to answer that, starting in Romans 6.1 and going all the way to Romans 8.13 in the Unchained Gospel. Ways, then, notably, is plural. The way of peace is singular. The way is Jesus Christ, John 14.6. The way of peace is the act of God in Christ, whereby the world was reconciled to God. Notice that. The way of peace is the gospel itself. It is the act of God in Christ, whereby God made peace by the blood of his cross in order to reconcile everything in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, thrones and dominions on down. As I've said before, from principalities to parsley, the whole creation reconciled. The way of peace then, is another word for the gospel itself. In Ephesians 6.15, Laodicean 6.15, it's called the gospel of peace, where we we should have on our feet, let them be shod with the gospel of peace, the announcement that God has made peace through the blood of Christ's cross, the announcement that God acted in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. You believe that or not? I could say a rhyme right now, but it wouldn't, well it would be vulgar do you believe that or not blank or get off the pot is what I was going to say I was what a terrible thing to say now you can take the kid out of Vermont but you cannot take Vermont out of the kid the barnyard now ways plural reveals the myriad paths that people take in their autonomy and independence from God, especially in their piety and religiosity. I'm going to start using religion in its negative connotation. But the gospel of peace, also known in Ephesians 1.13 as the gospel of your salvation, equates peace with salvation. So therefore, being justified by Messiah's fidelity, being rescued unconditionally by Jesus Christ's act of being handed over for our sins and raised up for our salvation, we have been justified, says Romans 5.1, or rescued, delivered, liberated by his faithfulness, and therefore we have peace with God. Another word for messianic salvation, peace. Ways plural again reveals the countless paths that people take in their autonomy and independence from God. Each one in his Adamic ontology says, I'm doing it my way. But there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. The Torah is the way. 
that this Jewish Christian teacher says is right, and it seems to be. But the end of that way is found in 2 Corinthians 3, 6b. The letter kills. The Torah, in its letter, kills. But the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. John 6, 63. So the gospel is not the proclamation of a way to live smarter or healthier. Nor is it about a way to live in order to be successful or happy or effective. It is the proclamation of Christ and of the Christ event in which God acted in Christ and now acts in the spirit to redeem humanity and all of creation from its slavery to sin, death, and corruption. So the Katina continues, notice it. He cites now Psalm 36.1. I'm going really fast, and this is a pretty lean exegesis compared to what I used to do, but this is important. Notice what verse 18 says. There is no respect for God before their eyes. That means in their worldview, there's no true reverence for God. Or we could say before their eyes is their horizon. On their horizon... There is no respect for God. National Geographic Channel will have a show called The Origins of Everything. And do you think in that horizon God will be anywhere in their viewpoint? Absolutely not. It's Nat Geo. And just like Nat Theo, natural theology, it doesn't get you anywhere. There is no respect, reverence. Fear is a good word if you understand it to mean awesome reverence for God in their view. So the teacher has no regard for the act of God in Christ. He will talk all day long about God, the God of Israel. He'll talk about the God of creation, but he has no respect for God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the act of God in Christ as the sole means for salvation of the sons of men. Anything outside of that to me, God in Christ as the sole means of the salvation of the sons of men. Anything outside of that is not a gospel. Forget about it. So on the teacher's horizon, instead are acts of human beings by which justification is secured from God. Now we're dealing here with the radical distinction of two different gospels. What we have today that we have to combat is far more hidden idolatry. The hidden idolatry of justification by individual faith as an act, an anthropocentric act, rather than the true gospel of the divine act in Christ and salvation through the faithfulness of Messiah, so that everyone's salvation is when God is pleased to reveal his son to you. So you can sing with Hank Williams, I saw the light. I saw the light. I like that better than I believed in Jesus and therefore he saved me. I like, I saw the light. Now I'm in the light. Now I'm in Christ. Now I see where I was, what I was saved from. I didn't even know how bad off I was until I'm in Christ and look retrospectively. That's what Paul's talking about here. From in Christ is when we see all these things. In Christ is when we look into the heavens and we see the glory of God there. In Christ, we look at all the earth and see it as his handiwork. In Christ, we see these things. Outside of Christ, we attribute it to some big bang thing or some other thing or some process. It's creaturely. It's anthropocentric. So on the horizon of this teacher... In his view are the acts of human beings by which justification is secured from God. On Paul's horizon is nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him having been crucified is the way it reads in the Greek, meaning now raised, ascended, and enthroned. So, I like the way Paul drops the hammer here. All these verses supply LBD, lower blade data, to the theological upper blade data the total depravity of humanity in the Adamic ontology. Mankind in the Adamic ontology is irredeemable. He is a basket of deplorables. He's irredeemable. In Adam, we are redeemed 
not in our Adamic ontology so that we are Christian lives is to improve it. We are redeemed from Adamic ontology. So we are to put off altogether the old man like an old suit of clothes. An old suit of clothes that you fell into a sewer with. You would be very quick to take them off, cast them aside, wouldn't you? Oh, maybe not. Maybe you like the smell of the sewer. Who knows? Who knows? So then, I'm sorry, I've given two very, very vulgar, crude analogies today. Please forgive me. Pray for me that God will reconcile me to his righteousness. Now, even though Paul said pretty much the same thing. Then, devastating to the teacher's gospel of salvation by works, done in compliance with Torah, Paul writes this, Romans 3.19. Now, we know, you and me both, teacher, we know. Jewish, Christian, Teachers, we know that whatever things the Torah says, and Torah here he generalizes as the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, including the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Torah of Moses, but it also includes the prophets, the Psalms, and the writings, the Ketubim, the Nebiim, and the Psalms, the whole of the scriptures. So Paul says, we know, speaking of the verses that he just quoted, We know that whatever things the Torah says, like all the above from 3.10 on, it says of those in the law, those who are in the framework of the Mosaic law, ethnic Israel included. That means all the above characterizations are of those who have Torah as well as for all others outside of the framework of Torah called the pagans and then he drops the hammer once and for all this time he's declaring victory planted the flag on this hill he knocked down the fortress of the teacher's gospel by works his nomistic gospel his gospel of works of the law and he says in order that every mouth every mouth that's pan stoma in the greek pan That's all, every, without exception, stoma, S-T-O-M-A, pan stoma may be shot. And all the world, pas hokosmos, again, he uses that word all. He's going to use that word a lot, especially when it comes into In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. The obedience of one led to the salvation of all humankind. The justification that is not a legal imputation, but the justification that is the very life as a gift to you. Life means freedom from enslavement to death. That's Romans 5.18. He's going to use that all a lot. But here he says, pas ha cosmos. The whole world is liable to God's judgment. The whole world is liable to God's judgment, including those who are in the framework of Torah. All these verses I just read in that you just read in your sermons too, teacher, they apply to everyone under Torah. So Torah can't be a saving means by any means, can it? Every mouth shut. This is for all of us as preachers. We got to shut our mouths before we open them. Shut our mouths and learn before we open them. And all the world liable to God's judgment. By your gospel teacher and by this reasoning, everybody's under the threat of divine retributive judgment. Your whole gospel is rooted in a God of retributive justice, not in the God of love. Your whole gospel, he's wiped it out now. By the teacher's gospel, the fake good news, everybody in the cosmos and the universe itself is accountable and deserving of divine retribution. But here's the point. Neither human accountability, which he tried to set up, the teacher tried to set up in 118 to 32, which assumes the thinking competence or the reason competence, the rational competence on the part of Adamic humanity to look up at the universe, to not only 
recognize the eternity and the immutability and the power of God by seeing that creation, but also recognizing that God likes certain ethical things and dislikes certain other ethical things, and therefore because they didn't recognize God because they're accountable according to the teacher, not according to Paul. God handed them over to all kinds of depraved desires, to idolatry, etc. God handed them over one by one when they, but Paul says, no, they all went aside all at once in Adam when Adam sinned. That's not something God does. He doesn't render the human. We're not accountable to recognize God and then to an ethical life. We can't do it. It's impossible. By the teacher's gospel, God hands over people to depravity and idolatry. By Paul's gospel, God hands over his son for our sins and raises him up for our salvation. That's a big difference. Can't reconcile those two things. So then, by the fake good news, the conclusion is everybody in the cosmos and the universe itself is accountable and deserving of divine retribution. In other words, God's got to burn up the whole mess. All people and all the universe all at once. He's got to burn it, according to the teacher's gospel, which assumes this. But neither human accountability nor creaturely deserving. Now, God's going to destroy the, cre- the creation itself, according to this rigid retributive justice, as if the universe itself could somehow be accountable to God and therefore deserving of his judgment. Mankind's in the same place. We groan together with the creation in our incapacity to extract ourselves from this enslavement. So there's neither an issue of human accountability or creaturely deserving. It has nothing to do with the gospel of God about his son, again, which is the proclamation of a divine redemptive invasion into the present evil age, Galatians 1.4, to unconditionally rescue the whole mass of humanity and the entirety of the universe of proportionate being that is presently enslaved to the powers, sin and death, as well as the Adamic ontology. Paul then begins a train of theological thinking, and this is, this is important too, and I will close with this. Paul begins a train of theological thinking. You're getting enough in this sermon right now. My sermon I'm giving you today, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is more than you will be delivered to you in four years of seminary training in most seminaries in the United States of America because most of them are committed to a mix of a gospel of works and a gospel of grace in some way or to a justification by personal faith theory. And that's not boasting. That's just the, the, because this is the gospel creaturely deserving and human accountability has nothing to do with the gospel of God about his son, which is the proclamation of a divine redemptive invasion into the present evil age to unconditionally rescue the whole mass of humanity and the entirety of the universe of proportionate being that's presently enslaved to sin and death and the Adamic ontology. So Paul now begins a train of theological thinking, car after car, which further dismantles the notion of justification by works prescribed by the law, by this unnamed teacher and his cohorts that have invaded Galatia also. Beginning with Romans 3.20, he adds... Psalm 143.2 to this cascade. Because from the works of Torah, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. In God's sight. Not in man's view. In God's sight who looked down upon the sons of men. Mankind in general. And saw no one good because there was no one good in that mass of humanity someone good had to come out come in from beyond that realm of humanity because all mankind and the man from the earth called Adam was in death and under sin then a man from heaven called Jesus Christ had to come the son of man to be the new inclusive representative of humankind that's the gospel Psalm 143.2 quoted here, because from the works of Torah, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. 
Please notice that this correlates with the survey of humankind in Adam by God. And so the human race in Adam in God's sight in Psalm 14.2. Then he says, for by the law, this is a shocker, by the law only comes the knowledge of sin. If by the law only comes the knowledge or the consciousness of sin, like Paul says in Romans 7, when he's a hypothetical character and he's doing a character, a speech in character, he says, I didn't know it was wrong to covet until the law came along and said, thou shalt not covet. Now I'm coveting all the time. The strength of sin is in that law. Torah only helps the cause of sin and its resultant cause death. How can it be the means of justification or salvation? You see how Paul's blown this citadel with C4? He's blown it all to hell because that's where it originates. It's hidden idolatry. Paul quotes this Psalm 143 too, in which the psalmist says this. He says, do not bring your servant, talking to God, do not bring your servant, that's me, into judgment because no living being can be justified in your sight. Don't bring me into judgment because no human being. That's what Paul quotes here, only he accommodates it. The psalmist recognizes that he couldn't stand in the judgment of God. Because no one can on their own merits. Paul applies this verse and adds that no living person can be justified in God's sight by works accomplished in compliance with Torah either. Because all of humankind are without the capacity to be justified by any means. But the means of divine and unconditional saving act of God in Christ. Hence, Romans 3.21 to 26, which we'll get to in coming weeks. 3.21. Now, a righteousness from God, a saving deliverance from God, apart from law, apart from what Torah requires, apart from human accountability and human deserving, is being apocalyptically revealed to those who have faith. It doesn't say imputed to those who have faith. It says revealed to those who have faith, those in Christ participating in his faithfulness, those who, like Hank Williams, saw the light because God was pleased to reveal his son to them. Now listen to a few things as we're going to, this is where we're going. I'm now plotting the course. I know these things, I know the gospel is glorious because I've already scouted it out for you. Been there, scouted it out. I'm one of those scouts that come back and says, the land is beautiful. And other scouts will say, yeah, but there's giants in the land. And I say, we can take them. No problem. We can take them. David took down a Nephilim named Goliath. And Joshua and his armies almost conquered all the land, but didn't quite finish it because a greater Joshua had to come along. And he did. His name is Yahushua. This is where we're going. Number one. Sin was in the world before the law, Paul said in Romans 5.13. It was in the world before the law. And then he says, and death reigned from Adam until Moses, through whom the law came. Death reigned as king over all human beings from Adam until Moses, through whom the law came. Romans 5.14 compared with John 1.17. So you'd think that this death would stop reigning when the Torah came through Moses, but all it did was reign even more, and sin increased even more by it. Here's a pagan. He's coveting his neighbor's wife. He's coveting his neighbor's, neighbor's goods. He's even coveting his neighbor's ass. That's in the Bible. Don't, don't charge me with anything. Three vulgar analogies. But he doesn't know it's wrong, and then somebody comes in and says... I'm a preacher of the good news. If you follow the Torah, which is do not covet, do not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's goods, or your neighbor's ass. Yeah, but he works out and he's got great glutes. No, never mind. Um, This guy didn't know. Now he knows. And so now he transgresses the law every single day and he can't help himself. 
The law increased the sin, increased the reign of sin, and increased the reign of death. But where sin abounded, God abounded much more in something we like to call gracias, grace, graciousness, unadulterated, unconditional, free gift, do re ma. Not do re mi, do re ma. The second thing, by the law came the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. By the law came the knowledge, the consciousness, the awareness of sin in Romans 3.20. Not, if by the law the knowledge knowledge of sin came, then what didn't come was justification by faith or by any other means. So by the law came the knowledge of sin in Romans 3.20. Not the imputation of righteousness. So the law is salvifically impotent. Because it addresses a flesh that is irredeemably Adamic. But what the law could not do in that it was weak through the Adamic ontology, God did in sending his son, acting in his son in a saving way. For when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And God sent the spirit of the son into our very hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. All of a sudden, we go from a slavish fearfulness of a deity we don't know to a filial, familial affection of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also our Father. Not a spirit again to fear but a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, dear father, to God himself. So third point, which we're going to get to, this is the land I've spied out for you. By the law, sin increased, Romans 5.20. So the law is ethically ineffectual. The law is salvifically impotent. The law is ethically ineffectual. It can't make you obey. It can't make you behave. It can't make you modify your behavior and reconstitute your Adamic ontology so that you don't know that that little stuff you put on your salad has at least 30 grams of sugar in it. It's reconstituted Adamic ontology. You can look good, smell good, and be reputed to be okay. Or it can have sweetener that's 20,000 times as sweet as sugar and makes you crave sugar like a demon all day long. Well, if I drink something with zero calories and sweetener in it, I'm fine. Yes. And that explains why you can't make it through the door. Now, what I'm saying is I'm making a shocking analogy to the Adamic ontology. You can dress it up. You can reconstitute it in a million different ways and dress it up with a thousand different labels. You can even baptize it. You can dunk it. You can make it go through a confirmation. You can sacramentally go through a gauntlet of sacraments and rituals. It's still Adamic ontology. Still the flesh. So put off the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, says Romans 13, 4. So by the law, sin increased. So the law is is ethically ineffectual. Moreover, by the increase of sin, death held its reign all the tighter. So what the law could not do in Romans 8, 8, 2 to 3, what the law could not do in that it was rendered impotent through the Adamic ontology, God did directly by sending his son. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to look into the perfect law of liberty, a fulfilled Torah of messianic faithfulness. Father, the more I see this gospel, the more I understand what Paul meant when he said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. I'm beginning to see, as others are in this place, I think, and elsewhere in the DVD groups and elsewhere. We're beginning to see that as the book of Revelation had at its very heart and center, an enthroned lamb who took away the sin of the world. So we're seeing in Paul's writings that our paschal lamb has been killed in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, and that he is reigning right now until all his enemies are made a footrest for his feet, until death, which he's already defeated, coughs up all of its victims, all of its victims in all of history. At the heart and the center of the Pauline epistles, There is a lamb enthroned, crucified, buried, raised, ascended, 
seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray that you will allow our minds to be focused on the things above and not on the things on the earth, but where Christ is seated, enthroned, because the enthroned Christ means death no longer reigns.